Bordy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Mand. Adventurer and author Alistair Humphreys left Yorkshire one day on his bike and didn't come back for four years, cycling through 60 countries. He's walked across India, rode across the Atlantic, has run six marathons through the Sahara, crossed Iceland, busked through Spain by facing his worst fears of performing badly in public, and having found all that much harder when real life came calling, pioneered the concept of micro-adventures. With words of wisdom we might all find motivational it's Alistair Humphreys. Tell us a bit about yourself. Okay I'm a um, adventurer I write books I do um, I make videos and films and I give talks about adventures and over the years my what I define as adventure has changed massively from the more sort of traditional big tough guy showing off how tough I am type traveling to becoming a bit more local and then a bit more introspective, I suppose. And what I like about, I'm going to start with your newest stuff, actually. What I like about what you're doing at the moment is the, you've given birth to this idea of the micro-adventure, is that you don't necessarily have to be Bear Grylls or Leveson Wood, or I'm sure there's plenty of women who I'm struggling to find, actually, women who are doing similar things. Similar things, yeah. but not these great big adventures. Because actually, they're almost... You, you might shout at me for saying this, but almost like a selfish thing, you know, especially when you're like married and you, you've got kids, you know, you can't afford in many ways to go off for three months or, or four years, which your first adventure was, you know, traveling the, that was around the world trip on a bike. So you've invented these micro adventures. And I, I love the idea of this is that you're having adventures in your hometown, in your home country, in your home county. Yeah, I spent years heading off around the world chasing big tough adventures and then I started to realize that there's a lot of people who like the idea of that and the theory of it but real life gets in the way a lack of time a lack of money work family whatever and what I noticed over many years of travels was that the reason I loved adventure was the reasons I could find closer to home so you know wanting to be by myself sometimes or with a couple of good people searching for wilderness and getting away from the internet, challenging myself, being curious, all of those things, I realised I could find walking a lap of my home. You know, I walked a circle around my home, a two-mile radius, and within that walk, I saw things I'd never seen before in my life, which therefore means I'm being an explorer, but two miles away from home. So this mindset shift from thinking I, 
in order to have adventure, I had to go further than anyone to realising that actually if I wanted to have adventure, I just had to look more closely than I'd been doing before. It was a real breakthrough. And the micro-adventures has astonished me by how much the idea has taken off, how much it's grown. I keep trying to ditch the idea and move on to something else, but people are just continually interested. And I've accepted now that, okay, micro-adventures is my thing. I should get on and embrace this. It's good stuff. You're saying you were listening to my podcast with Erling Kaga, the Norwegian explorer, and he was saying about walking, and I totally agree with this. You have, it almost elongates your life, is what he was saying, because you have, you see these details. You know, if you go from A to B in a car, yeah, you get there quicker, but you don't have the everyday details, and you can make a whole day of going, you know, just popping to a, a shop almost, or a, or a museum, as long as you've got like a reasonably decent walk to get there. Yeah, I've noticed on long, long walks I've done that time moves very differently. So weeks and months might fly by, but the individual hours are very slow and very full. And one of the reasons I did my latest walk was because I was getting so frustrated with normal life, just rushing and rushing and rushing and feeling really frustrated that I was not living life the way I wanted to and not getting as much done as I wanted to. And I just didn't have enough time take yourself off on a long walk somewhere and suddenly 24 hours feels ample. If you remove all the stuff that you don't need in your life, then suddenly there is plenty of time for the stuff that you really do need. And that was quite a, a big transformative thing for me. And you get to have a life as well. I had Leveson Wood on the podcast and, you know, the one thing that I read about him and I did ask him, I didn't propose to him, one, I'm already married, two, I don't know if he'll have me, to be honest. He's out, uh, he's out of your league. <laughs> he's out of my league, he's totally out of my league. And, uh, but he was saying that he, he doesn't, the one thing he doesn't have is like a wife, you know, he's, he's sacrificed, not that the wife is a be all end all in life, but he's sacrificed a lot of personal relationships to bugger off around the world for, you know, yeah, big, various big, times. Big expeditions are incredibly selfish things. There are other things that are selfish in life, you know, chasing your career or being an obsessive parent, but yeah, big adventures are undoubtedly selfish, especially ones that involve putting yourself at great risk and taking huge amounts of time and all of your mental focus away. Yeah, it's a massively selfish thing to do in life. But you have done those. You've gone, uh, I'll list them now. First of all, I want to talk about Spain first, but your first big adventure involved setting off from Yorkshire on your bike and not stopping for four years. You've done the Marathon de Sable, 150 mile run across the Sahara Desert. You've rode the English Channel to raise a million pounds for help for heroes. You've walked across India. You've walked and pack raft, whatever that is, across Iceland. You've rode unsupported across the Atlantic you've walked through the empty quarter desert uh, you've won the National Geographic accolade of adventure of the year and then you crashed didn't you by the sound of it you crashed and we're gonna that is a fascinating thing that you did there after all that adventuring but I'm going to talk first about your new book which is called My Midsummer Morning and it's inspired by Laurie Lee's adventures were they in the 40s and 30s 30s in the 30s of course the Civil War and books that I've read and loved many years ago and dear to my heart because I grew up in Spain and I spend half the year, if I can, in Spain. So it was all inspired by a violin, which you can't play. So tell <laughs> us about this, uh, this journey. <laughs> yes, uh, I sh- we need to get some violin footage for your listeners to enjoy or endure for this clip. Laurie Lee in the 30s walked through Spain playing his violin, a typical young person's hobo adventure, and he wrote it beautifully. I read it when I was a student. I bought it in a secondhand shop and loved it. And ever since then, time and again, I've read the book and I've thought, I'd love to do that trip. It would make a great book, great film, I'd love to do it. But 
the prospect of having, in order to make it a decent adventure, I felt you have to play the violin and you have to live off the violin. You know, if you turn up your wallet, your credit card and the violin, then you're just playing a game. If you have only the violin, that makes it real. You've got some stake in the game and it's significant. However, I can't play the violin or any other instrument. And actually I'm performing in public terrifies me. You know, I hate dancing. I hate karaoke. It's just, I hate doing stuff like that. So it was all of my fears, really, and my incompetencies. And so I shelved it for 15 years and did all that other stuff that you just listed. But I started to notice that I've cycled across continents. I've walked a long way. I've rowed oceans. And so if I, and that's traditional adventure, but if I just kept doing more of that, that was not particularly impressive or interesting anymore. It's actually just me hiding in my comfort zone, living a life of routine in a rut. All of the stuff I didn't want to be doing by doing this. And actually, if I wanted adventure, what I needed was something that frightened me, something with uncertainty, something I was probably going to fail, something I had no idea how to do that really alarmed me. And in that case, what I needed to do was buy a violin and start doing lessons and learning kiddie violin lessons with sort of, uh, the, the kid who came out of the room before me was this sort of little six-year-old who's way better than me. And I just wanted to give him a little elbow in the head before I went in. <laughs> Seven months of lessons, not nearly enough. I was terrible. I could play five 20-second ditties really badly. I never practiced busking in England because I wanted full-on fear. Turned up in Spain emptied the final coins out of my pocket and walked out one midsummer morning to busk in a little plaza in Vigo in Galicia. <sighs> and that was the most frightened I'd felt since the day I set off to row the Atlantic Ocean, which I found absolutely intriguing because the fears are very, very different. You walk past buskers all the time and you can't imagine for one moment that they're as scared as you were when you were sitting out mm. to do a, a very arduous trip across the Atlantic. Yeah. And I'm sure they're not because that's their everyday reality. Exactly. They're good at their instruments and yeah, it's a different thing. So the, the adventure comes from putting yourself in a situation that you're not comfortable with. Grab a violin teacher and make them row an ocean, they might be scared. We should totally do that. Yes, next yeah. Get me to play the violin and suddenly I'm massively out of my comfort zone. So tell me about the journey because I'm a massive Spanglophile. I love Spain. Well, the journey was magical. I was slightly worried having read Laurie Lee's book that it would be an anticlimax because he writes very flowery, beautiful prose. But the landscapes, for, so through Galicia and Castile down to Madrid, it was some of the most beautiful landscapes I've walked through in a very long time. I didn't have enough money for hotels, obviously. Uh, so I was sleeping out every night, cooking on campfires, swimming in rivers. Spanish summer, I was just sleeping under the stars every night, walking as far as I could every day, and then dropping down from the hills into a village to earn the money I needed for my next meal. So it was an incredible, simple existence. It was the happiest I've been in many, many, many years. And it was a wonderful, beautiful experience. But the actual adventure. So day one in Spain, I open my map and look at this route, 500 mile route I have to walk to Madrid. And I realized that until that moment, I'd not put a moment's thought into having to walk 500 miles, camp out for a month, all the usual adventure stuff, because I'd done that so often. So the adventure was the first morning of standing up in that plaza, getting out my violin for the very first time and beginning to play. And how did it go? It was everything I dreaded, which was exactly <laughs> what I wanted. You know, I wanted this 
but it was horrible. It was so, so embarrassing. Everyone just walked past me, ignored me, wrinkled their nose at me, frowned at me, ignored me. So many people ignoring me. Oh, it was horrible. I played for hours, just desperately trying to think of excuses. How can I get out of here? How can I escape with some sort of dignity intact? This is the worst idea I've ever had. Oh, it was horrible. And then some old gentleman who'd been sitting on a park bench nearby a bizarrely long amount of time, he stood up with his walking stick and he walked slowly over towards me and I thought he was going to tell me off. I thought he was going to say, Senor, enough, por favor, clear off, give us back our peace. But he didn't. He reached into his pocket and he gave me a coin. And I just thought my heart was going to burst here with the excitement and the relief and the amusement of all this. I'd done it. I was, I'd earned a coin. I was now a professional musician. I could begin. It was amazing. Um, how did you, I mean, what did you do with that coin? I mean, how did you eat? You have no money. Did you earn enough from busking to eat and drink and live? Obviously, you, so know, before, you survived. Before the trip started, I nearly chickened out of the trip. I nearly postponed it for a year because I really thought it was unrealistic. So I made a deal with myself, which was don't think about the whole trip. Just turn up in Spain and somehow get one euro. Find it on a street, steal it from a cafe off someone's tip plate, <laughs> whatever it is, get a euro buy a bag of rice, walk for a week, and then we'll talk. Then we'll see if this is ridiculous or not. So when this first man gave me one euro on the very first morning of the trip, I just couldn't believe it. That was you know, enough for a bag of rice, enough for a week. I was in business. And I genuinely thought this trip was going to be involving me scavenging, picking carrots from the fields and nicking pizza slices from cafe tables. But I didn't. I lived like an absolute king. I earned a fortune. I earned, in a month, 120 euros, which is more money than any man needs for life. <laughs> a life, a month on 120 euros, it was just decadent. It was amazing. I could eat bread and bananas on the same day. Wow, you're so spoiled. Yeah. Thinking of Laurie Lee, Laurie Lee has these most wonderfully evocative descriptions of the food in Spain. And the food, for many people, is one reason why they go to Spain. You know, I, I remember you know, his description of, of eating seafood in Madrid. And of course, it's not, it's landlocked. So there is no seafood in Madrid, but they used to buck it. I mean, I'm sure they obviously still do now, but it wasn't a novel thing. Yeah, you know, it was a novel it thing there. They brought it in with the trains of ice, they didn't they? They brought it in with the trains mm. of ice, yeah. And he has these wonderful descriptions of these fresh calamari and lobster and feathered prawns and that sort of thing. And wine, you know, the whole Spanish culture is tapas and wine. And actually... Not 120 euros a month cheap, but it is bloody cheap. There's plenty of places you go where you, st you get a drink and you get a free tapper still, especially in those, you know, smaller villages. And were you not, like, gutted to be missing out on that? Yeah, I mean, yes. I walked through Spain and, ha and ate and didn't drink any wine. So it's, yeah, it's a shame that I didn't get that aspect of Spain. But on the other hand, I spent a lot of time on hilltops and walking through little villages and chatting with old people and had a wonderful experience. But yeah, I would quite like to go back and have some nice food for sure. Were you lonely at some point? Because I would find that quite difficult being on my own. But that's maybe a personal yeah. thing. No, one of the big issues of my entire adventuring life has been the fine line between loneliness and solitude. I had four years cycling around the world on my own, which is a wild oscillation between solitude when you're loving the freedom and loneliness when you just think you feel like you're the saddest person on earth. And in Spain, I was not lonely, 
Partly it was only a month, so it was a pretty short trip. Secondly, it was the whole trip depended upon humans, strangers, me standing up, busking terribly and just trusting that someone would kindly help me. I never said to people, please give me money because I'm doing this walk. I just stood there silently and played the violin and I'm terrible. So people were purely donating out of kindness and that leads to conversations and... So in many ways, it felt like the most sociable adventure I've ever done. Uh, well, we get onto your other stories in a minute, but what was the highlight of the trip, sort of emotionally mm. or from a travel perspective, from any perspective, what do you think? Well, the biggest highlight of the trip was that first morning when the man gave me a euro. And writing this book, I was very conscious that in terms of a story narrative, it was terrible because actually the best part of the book, the best part of the whole adventure happened on morning one. <laughs> and then nothing bad happened for the whole trip, which also is bad for a book because <laughs> it was just a joyful experience. So that was wonderful. Then the realising that the landscapes were as beautiful as I'd hoped in, in my imagination from reading the book. And it was not at all disappointing. And then the trip ended wonderfully as well. Crossing the Sierra de Guadarrama, the mountains near Madrid, up and over those to Madrid was a really beautiful ending to the trip. So it was a mixture of a month of simplicity, beautiful landscapes and the comedy of busking just all combined to make it a really special experience for me. When you saw Madrid for the first time, do you get that view? Like I get this view when I'm coming back into London from Kent or something, you know, when you come across something like Shooter's Hill or a, a high point when you're coming back home and you can see the city or the place where you live and you get that feeling. I, I always think of the people of the centuries that have, you know, I'm only driving back from the coast or whatever, but I think of explorers or people coming to the city to seek their fortune or, you know, escape some terrible event or whatever. And seeing that view and knowing people have stood on that hill and looked down for centuries and gone, wow, there it is. Did you have that feeling? The, the first view I had of Madrid is from the top of those mountains. There's three very prominent skyscrapers in Madrid that I first caught my eye in the distance. And I felt excited that I could see the end, but actually I mostly felt sad that this was nearly over. Most of my trips, I'm desperate for the end, but this one was just so joyous. And the fact that I'd now realised I could walk and earn a living from the violin, which essentially meant I could just do this for the rest of my life, walk and play the violin and eat banana sandwiches. And so I was, very, I was actually really sad that the end was coming. I love it that I actually know musicians who probably earn about 150 euros a month and that's what they've got for the rest of their lives. So was it 150? 120. 120. Oh God, 150, you would have been rich. Yeah, then I could have had some tapas. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the book. The book is My Midsummer Morning, Rediscovering a Life of Adventure. And obviously that's in homage to Laurie Lee's As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. Yeah, which is a wonderful book. I'm going to reread that and I'm going to reread... And I'm going to read this as well because it looks fabulous. And let's talk a little bit about your other adventures before we talk about where you sort of crashed emotionally or some sort of mini breakdown, I'm guessing, after all these adventures. But your first big adventure involves you setting off from Yorkshire on your bike and literally not stopping for four years. What, what the hell was that about? I stopped here to the toilet. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe literally not stopping yeah. is a slight exaggeration. I imagine you had the odd bit yeah. of sleep in there. Yeah, I had lots of stopping, actually, which is a interesting comparison to some people cycle around the world as fast as they can to break you know, records and for me it was the opposite of that it wasn't a sporting feat I wanted to just use the bike as a way to travel the world like a lot of young people do and I think that cycling is still the best way I've ever encountered for traveling it's slow enough to see everything properly but quick enough to actually cover some decent distances it's painful 
which I like, but not ridiculously painful, like walking. And, um, and it's cheap and affordable and accessible for young people starting off for adventures. So they were the reasons I chose to do the trip, not because of any love of cycling. The reason I tried to cycle around the world was what I really wanted to do was just go for a really big ride. I didn't really think I'd get around the whole world because that's massive. I just thought I'll set some big target and see how far I get. And I wanted to do that trip to see places I'd never been and go to exciting things like young guys going backpacking. I was very curious about the physical challenge and the mental challenge of seeing if I could push myself really, really hard. So looking back, I was I was really harsh on myself. It was a proper exercise in masochistic suffering <laughs> as a lot of things I've done seem to have been well it's your first big adventure you never I don't think anything ever beats that the funny thing is is when I was reading that is that you know yeah there you are in Yorkshire and you've got a bike and a passport there's nothing stopping you from going around the whole world that is it's it's mind-blowing mm. when you think about it but it's so simple so what countries did you go to I cycled to Cape Town first of all <laughs> as you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so Yorkshire to Cape Town via Europe, the Middle East and all down East Africa. Oh my God, that's um, crazy. Then I s- crossed the Atlantic on a sailing boat and then cycled from the bottom of Patagonia from Ushuaia right the way to northern Alaska. Oh my God, I'm just visualising it from the very top to the very bottom of the Americas. Yeah, that was a year and a half. And then I crossed, I got a boat out of Alaska over to Asia and then I cycled from northeastern Siberia back to England. What were your parents thinking? I think they were hoping I'd get a proper job because I went straight after university. So they definitely thought that I'd be heading down a more conventional route in life. I was, I was, my plan was to be a teacher, but being a teacher is way too much like hard work. So I cycled around the world for four years. And instead. how did you live? How did you earn money? So I'd been daydreaming about this for my five years as a student. So I saved up £7,000. That was my worldly wealth, which of course is no way near enough money to cycle around the world. But I figured that if I stayed and got a proper job until I had enough money, however much enough would be, then there was a serious danger that real life would kick in and I'd end up with a, a wife and a mortgage and a cat and, like you got a, now. <laughs> and a pension plan and I would never escape. And I just thought, Getting going on this adventure is more important than having more money. So I'm just going to see how far I can get for £7,000. And I made it around the whole world. You didn't have to work or anything? No. Well, I chose not to work. It was, you know, I I chose basically to live like a total tramp and not to work. So it was already four years. And if I stopped somewhere, say, picking grapes for six months, then it just dragged on and on and on. And also I found the trip really hard. So I was quite close to quitting a lot of the time. And I thought... If I stop and do some nice job for a few months, there's a chance I'm not going to keep going. Real life will catch me somewhere else. What was the hardest moment? The hardest part of the trip was the scale of it. I completely underestimated how hard and lonely it would be to set off in your 20s on a project that was going to take years to finish by yourself, which essentially no one cares. Once you've once everyone waves goodbye, they kind of forget about you and get on with life. So it was a very, very lonely experience trying to chase an end goal, which for at least the first two years I was convinced I wouldn't get to. So that, that was the hardest part by a very long way. Do you think you've got, what is it do you think you've got in you that makes you want to do these sort of things? I think I have a ridiculous thing in me that makes myself just want to make my life hard. 
It's it's which is um, just to try and push myself. So, for example, I have cold showers in the morning, not because I like them, but because I hate them. So you sort of whip yourself with like a reed or something. No, but that might be the next project. I've recently recently started giving up breakfast just because I hate it. So then, by the time I get to lunch, I think, oh, I've earned my lunch. So there's definitely something weird inside me. But I think it's about earning the reward I think. When you did that journey you went to how many countries? 60. 60 countries. Do you get country blind? Do you get travel blind? Does it all roll into one or do you still stop and appreciate the view? Somewhere around year three I wrote an article for the Guardian and they paid me 300 pounds and I just thought whoa I've hit the big time now. 300 pounds for an article write one of these every few months I could live forever and I could just cycle around the world forever writing for the Guardian every six months <laughs> you certainly put it in perspective as a writer and yeah. a travel writer myself and people you know who knows musicians you know your 130 euros a month that you're really chuffed with your 300 pounds mm. for an article that you're really chuffed with once a month yeah. well there are two choices for life in terms of money you either earn more or you spend less and both are viable ways to having a life filled with adventure and when you're on a bike with a tent all you need to pay for is food, visas, and a new pair of flip-flops every six months. So I th- had this realisation that I could cycle around the world forever. But about the same time, I also had a realisation that I was starting to get a bit jaded. I was, I was thinking, oh, another invitation to stay with a nomadic tribe in their hut. This reminds me of You're when I was in you. Peru. This <laughs> reminds me of when I was in Azerbaijan. And I started to think, wow, there's a diminishing returns to this and there are other things to do in life that are also enriching and exciting and fill my curiosity and just continually doing more of the same is not what I want. So by the time I got to Central Asia, so after about three and a half years, I was definitely a bit jaded, which seemed a real shame. And that was a, a motivation for me to come home, stop, think and do something different. But then you did do many more adventures. So the Marathon de Sable, which is a 150 mile run across the Sahara, that must have been pretty challenging. It was challenging, but brief. The good thing about cycling around the world for four years is that everything after that seems quite short. So. <laughs> it's like doing a long haul flight. It's like going to Australia. Yeah. After that, when you go to Spain, you're like, oh my God, it's like I went to the end of the road. Yeah, exactly. So that, that was a hard, it was really hard, but it was only a week. And I thought, oh gosh, I can suffer for a week. But I enjoyed that because it was different. It was an event with 800 people running through the desert and I walked across India because I wanted something different I wanted well all the reasons anyone ever goes to India but then I wanted the opposite of that when I crossed Iceland because I wanted the emptiness and the wilderness so I like the variety of ways that you can travel and I like doing things that are new for me I like the notion of being a beginner that's what's really driven my choices of projects I think and you've done a lot of stuff for charity haven't you well I don't like to talk about charity (laughs) to be honest not really no to be honest what I let's forget about that one to be honest what I do is whenever I come up with a big trip for very selfish reasons I think well I might as well make a little bit of good come from it so I try and raise some funds or awareness for charity. The one thing I have done that's been good, really good actually for charity, but for other people has been, I've started an event called Night of Adventure, which is in March. It's just a speaking night in March, 10 speakers in one night, short, sharp talks, 900 people in the audience come, get excited and then go off and have adventures of their own. And that's what I love. We've been doing these for about 10 years now and raised loads of money, but I love the fact that Every year I hear from people who said, I came to that event and it finally made me realise that the excuses I've been making are no longer valid 
and I just need to pack my bag and go. And that's that's been really good. I'm sort of mixing it up now, but going back to your micro adventures, like sometimes you just sort of, even though you've got wife and kids and, you know, a normal life living in Kent, you know, perfectly normal house by the looks of it, because you work in your shed out the back, which looks very nice, all lit up and everything. But sometimes you just like think of an evening, right, I'm going to go and sleep on a nearby hill rather than stay here in the house. Yeah, I love sleeping on hills and that, that's been a real... It's a title for your next book, I think. Yes, it could be. That could be... It's been a change in my mindset of previously thinking, right, I do my life and I earn some money and then I go have an adventure to now trying to think, why don't I try and just fit little adventures in around the margins of busy, normal life? So when I finish a day in my shed writing or doing boring tax returns or something annoying, I just think, ah, and then I grab my bag and I go sleep on a hill and I come back for breakfast. Oh, not for breakfast anymore because I've given it up. But I come back in the morning refreshed. Similarly, this year, I've started, I have a calendar invite that pops up every first of the month saying, go climb a tree and comes and I just stop my computer and I go to this tree near where I live and I climb it and I look around and I see how the nature's changed in a month. It gives me a few minutes to think how my last month has been and to maybe think, what am I gonna do in the next month? Pause, come back down the hill, go back to work. And just doing something like that monthly is really, I think a real important way to just try and fit the, the wanderlust we all have, but into real life and this is the things that you used to do as kids we used to do as kids you know i spent hours days up trees i loved i thought i was going to be a professional tree climber i don't even think it exists but i it see does. my it does it oh yeah. great I might, I might apply i might change yeah. career i see my six-year-olds having tiny little micro adventures when we're on the beach and you know think we well, let's spend half an hour here and then move on you know he's fascinated by the crabs and the creatures and can spend like the whole day there and it's something that we leave behind as we grow up and people must look at you and think, some people must think, oh, that's great, I'm going to get back to that. And other people must think, actually, you're a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, I think so when I first started doing the micro-adventures, so really specifically and deliberately going small with my adventures, well, first of all, I felt a real fraud because I was supposed to be an adventure guy doing big stuff. And now I was doing this small stuff. I had a bit of a identity crisis. But I also, I specifically remember I was building this raft on a river in the Lake District and having a real laugh doing it, loving it in a beautiful place. But feeling guilty that it's a Tuesday, I should be on Excel, I'm in my 30s, I should be doing a spreadsheet or something, just feeling childish. But actually what I'm doing is childlike. And there's plenty of time to fit in enough Excel and spreadsheets to make me feel grown up. But this notion of getting back to the things we used to do as kids is really important. It's interesting how we're always trying to encourage young, we're berating young kids now for being on their screens and saying, oh, when I was a kid, I used to climb trees and swim in rivers and go up hills to watch the sunset. And we praise that as being good and an important thing to do, but we don't do it ourselves as adults which, when it's us that actually needs us. Because by the time we're adults, we are unfit, we're stressed, we're sleep deprived, we're depressed and miserable all the things that kids generally aren't, we are the people who need to be climbing trees, swimming in rivers and sleeping on hills. Not our kids, they're quite happy. Let them watch Peppa Pig or something, they're fine. And that's often what holidays and travelling is about, isn't it? And what you're saying is like, bring that holiday travelling feeling into your everyday life, yeah, not just the weekend. Yeah, because the traditional way of life for most people is you work hard all year 
and then you reward yourself with your two-week summer holiday. And maybe you know, bank holidays are chaos on the roads because people reward themselves with a quick escape to the countryside to go camping or something. And, and that's the, the order of life. But what I'm trying to encourage people is do that because that's a necessary part of life. But why not, when you finish work one evening, go climb a hill and watch the sunset? Or one Saturday morning when you don't have to go to work, why not wake up an hour earlier, go for a quick swim in the river and come home and then get on with the day. So trying to live adventurously every day is feeling increasingly important to me rather than saying, these are my decades of work and then this is my bit of holiday. Yeah, I totally agree. I really do. Life is short. And I know you've, you've said that, you know, adventure is more of an attitude that you can find it anywhere. It's about, you know, it's that spirit within you. Just a few more travelly things. What's been your best ever view? Oh, best ever view. Gosh, I will choose a place I've dreamed of going to for years and never got round to because I was too busy in real life and making excuses. And I just thought if I can get to this place, then the view will be amazing. And I've got a map of it on my desk by my computer. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in the world. And it's in Scotland. Uh-huh. Uh, um, so many people say that about Scotland. Yeah, a mountain called Sulvan. It's shaped like a shark fin jagging up out of the landscape. And I lucked out and got to the top of it in a day of glorious sunshine rare in scotland and camped on the top of it and that is it's incredibly beautiful but it's extra special because i'd been putting it off for years because of real life and i finally got on and made it happen what's been the country where you felt most foreign and awkward that's a good question i felt foreign in china rural china not in the starbucks cities but in rural china felt very foreign Japan is a very odd one because in many ways I felt I belonged as in everyone there is rich and educated and got cars and electricity like me, which are often things that make me feel alien. So they've got all that stuff I've got and yet their culture is so different. So I felt that strange mixture of belonging and never, ever being able to or allowed to belong there. And then also in Ethiopia, I think, is the hardest place I've been for not always feeling made welcome which uh, which I found very very that's a very rare experience in the world I find actually I had one of my guests recently who's an explorer Sam McManus he was saying that Ethiopia is the place where he's felt most welcomed which ah, is really interesting. interesting it's always hard giving massive simplifications the reason so th- so I'm going to answer with this simplification myself yeah, go on, do it. the reason Sam enjoyed it was because he was I know what he was doing he was properly off the beaten track yes, I was essentially was, yeah. cycling through Ethiopia therefore taking the route that anyone will go through Ethiopia. This is a simplistic answer, it's going to open a mass can of worms. But it's basically going down the route that all the charities and aid workers have gone down and given people stuff. And then I was going through areas where people just wanted me to give them stuff, which I didn't really want to do, and then people would get angry at me. Is it, was it also like the busy places? You know, when people say, oh, I could never live in London. It's so busy, nobody talks to you. It's like, well, that's not London. Everyone talks to yeah. me but because nobody lives on Oxford Street. You know? Some people do. Yeah, yes. I can't, yeah, it's a horrible street. I, uh, I like busy places. I love the chaos and the noise. I don't... So e- Egypt, for example, there are parts of Egypt I really enjoy, but anywhere where all the, the tourist hotspots, I hated because I was just perceived as someone who would buy stuff and I really, it really annoyed me. So I think, as always, getting off the beaten tracks, the key to being made welcome, I think. Place where you've been... The most remote place you've been most remote place I've been is probably the middle of the Atlantic Ocean oh yes the road tell us about the road thousands of miles away from land thousands of metres of water beneath you 
God knows how much emptiness above you. The nearest fellow humans are the astronauts on the International Space Station. Yeah, that is a sense of huge space meets massive claustrophobia because you're stuck in a little rowing boat, uh, in my case with three other blokes. So it's a mixture of claustrophobia and agoraphobia, boredom and terror. Very strange experience, which I'm extremely glad I did, but I have no intention of repeating. What was the terror? Massive storms in the night is quite scary in a little rowing boat. Yeah, that's frightening. Just thinking of that depth below would really freak me out, I think. That's interesting. The depth never troubled me at all. It was more just the ferocity of a wave. That's what I found alarming. When the wave comes up behind you, because you hear them coming, surging, rushing up behind you, that it felt aggressive. But the fact that it's just a wave and didn't care made it even worse for me, that it could just smash you as it carried on its merry way towards becoming some nice little surf wave in Miami or something. That that really unsettled me. The happiest you've been when travelling? I think my summer in Spain was a real different thing for me because a lot of my journeys have been very deliberately masochistic. A lot of my times travelling, I've thought, if ever I get happy, I start thinking, I'm not meant to be happy. <laughs> this is meant to be an adventure. I'm meant to suffer more. If I'm happy, I'm on holiday. This is meant to be suffering. Ripping yourself. Yeah, essentially. Whereas in Spain, maybe I'm growing up, I finally thought, it's okay to be happy sometimes. It's only going to be, it's a short step before you're lying on the beach in the Maldives oh, doing nothing. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And, and finally I'll see Reading what, the English paper. Yeah, exa- yeah fine, I'll think. So this is what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> but you did, on that subject, you did have like some sort of crash or mini, mini breakdown maybe. I mean, you describe it to me. What was it after all those adventures? You had some so a massive come down by the sounds of it. It was more just real life caught up with me. So I spent years chasing big adventures in that carefree, selfish, brilliant way. And then got married, had two kids, and that's all great. However, it somehow suddenly got in the way of me disappearing off for four months to the South Pole, for example. And just that constraint of my life once I became a parent and it became more about our life I found and still find very difficult extremely frustrating and irritating and wonderful all jumbled in often within the same five minutes together Uh, yeah that's parenting isn't it yeah exactly it's just so nothing so nothing happened to me I just became a parent with all its joys and disasters but I found the lack of freedom really difficult and perhaps more difficult than a lot of people because of what I've been doing before. Salvation came eventually through micro adventures through realizing hey I can put my kids to bed my wife can have a bath and watch telly and I can quickly grab my rucksack and leg it up that hill sleep out under the stars and I'll still be back in time to take the kids to school in the morning. I can still have some of my life my wilderness and our life together. So the microadventures was massive for that. And then the Spain trip came about from me thinking, I hadn't done a trip for years because our kids were little. They grew up enough to be not so annoying. So it was possible to go get four weeks away. And just realising that I was always telling my kids about trying to live an adventurous life and be curious and push yourself and do hard, rewarding things. But I wasn't really showing them that anymore. So I wanted to go do this trip to Spain to just show them what an adventurous life meant to me. I imagine their interpretation will be very different, but I want them to be curious. And I wanted to show them that I was still trying to do that as well as drive them to football practice. 
Do you think there's a, a certain privilege being a male and being a dad as opposed to being a mum? Because I would love to go off travelling Spain for a month on my own. <laughs> Just thinking about it now. But I couldn't. I could, I could, emotionally, I couldn't leave the kids and my husband would go like, no, no way. Oof, how long have we got? <laughs> condense it into a minute. <laughs> okay, I'll condense it into a minute. I think parenting has changed enormously in the last generation. That's an hour's conversation reduced to a sentence. Women still bear the main emotional burden, but I think bigger than that, they impose upon themselves a bigger emotional burden. That's another hour's conversation. No, you're absolutely right. I'm nodding vigorously. You're right. So, yeah, there are different standards from society. That's another hour's conversation. (laughs) However, my rallying cry is, you can do it, you know, or or people can do it. So I'm the main parent in our family. So I take the kids to school. I pick them up. I do all the stuff. We fitted this interview in around childcare. So I'm the main parent in many ways. The default parent, they call it. Oh, do they? Yeah. So I don't like this assumption that it's so easy for me, just because I'm a bloke, to disappear off. I can argue against that for an hour, which I won't, but I think you have some point. But the point, hopefully, is diminishing as the years pass and society changes. Yeah, I totally get everything you say and agree (laughs) with all the... You know, I can see all... We can all see all sides of it, and it is difficult to leave your kids, but... You know, I'm going on a girls weekend to Spain where we're going to be drinking cocktails and having those tapas and wine. And it's only going to be two nights and three days. And honestly, I can't wait because I've done it before and it just recharges you. And it's an amazing thing to do. I think, like you said, you know, whether I'd be allowed in inverted commas or not to go away for a month, I, I don't think I would. But Allowed it, by who? Well, exactly. Is it myself? Is it here? I mean, he would not be happy. The same as I would struggle with him going away for a month. But my kids are smaller there'll probably be a time when that things like that might happen it's and also we're not those people we haven't done it yet but there's so many confusing things that hold you back and it's not just about being a parent it's about people that say I don't have the time I don't have what would my work say you know I think if it's something you really want to do that really means that much to you you've just got to do it and persuade everyone else and everything else will fall in place but all of those reasons, which are valid, are the reasons I, that I wrote my microadventures book. Because there's two, there's two, I realised there's two options. When people are saying, people come up to me after talk and say, I'd love to do what you do, but... And then I have two options in answer. I can either say, well, it's simple. Just divorce your husband, <laughs> leave a few tins of beans open for your kids and go cycle around the world. Of course you can do that. And you could. You could get on your bike now and be gone. You could. Yeah, you yeah, will, I could, yeah. I, I suggest you don't, but, but you Yeah, could. we'd mess up my life, so, but I so could that, Exactly. Yeah. Well, and people do. Yeah, and in many ways, it frees your life to have great adventures. But that's quite a harsh option. So the other option that I've started saying was, okay, so maybe you can go for a bike ride this weekend, or maybe you can put your kids to bed and go climb a tree. So and trying to accept which barriers in your life are just fixed and you can't get around them, and perhaps ultimately you don't want to get around them. And which barriers are ones that you just, you can find a way around and actually you're making excuses. And a lot of the time, the money, the mental stuff in our head is stuff that we can get around, not to go travel the world, but to go have a micro-adventure. And I think the reason, well, I know the reason the micro-adventures idea has done so well is because it's applicable to everyone. Lev Wood, you mentioned earlier, he's still living this adventure life of young, free, hunky, handsome, <laughs> devilishly handsome, single guy going off on adventures. And we love those it stories. It's certainly fun interviewing him. <laughs> we love those stories on the telly because they're great. But then there's the real life thing of how do we still fit some of this into real life? And that's what 
micro-adventures have been helping with. And in a way, he's restricting himself. He's like, he's doing the opposite. He's having too many adventures. He's like, I can't, you know, stop. I'm this guy. I can't just stop and, you know, do what you do. Well, that's what... Have a wife and kids. He's in the exact same position I was in 10 years ago. Exactly the same thing. And it's a choice. You know, you can do anything you want in life, but you can't do everything. And there's a time in your life for doing different things. You can't do everything right now. But if you're thoughtful and take steps, then there is a time within life to do many of the things you want to do. Well, I have to ask you my last question. And my last question is always about music. And it's about music and travel, because maybe as an adventure, it's slightly different. But often music and travel go hand in hand. And I'd like you to choose, if you can, if you had to choose one song that reminds you of an incredible, memorable, maybe even difficult time or place of travel, what would that song be? That song would be Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. When I first decided to busk through Spain, my first song that I decided to learn was Thunder Road. On the violin? On the violin. Wow. Just the opening bars okay, and yeah. the closing bars. Unfortunately, it was way too hard for me, but I did persevere with the opening closing bars. That has been the soundtrack song to my life. A town full of losers and I'm heading out of here to win. That's the song that's just been the soundtrack track to my adventuring life. I'd love to see all those people crowded around you or maybe avoiding you in these tiny church squares all across Spain listening to a bit of Bruce Springsteen. Played very badly. Played very badly. Yeah, but enthusiastically. <laughs> oh that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Alistair. Seriously inspirational and motivating stuff. If I haven't run off to camp out in a Spanish hill for a month, I'll be back next week. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. 